BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. podcast um we're getting to the end of the calendar year as you know uh coming up on the holidays uh everybody you know people are starting to uh decamp to uh relatives and stuff like that and but we still have a lot of news um you know we had this we had this hearing yesterday uh with the jan 6 committee i is, i'm not sure if that's the final I guess it's the final hearing. It's not the final act of the committee. And we are actually recording this episode on Tuesday, whereas we usually do it on Wednesday. And the reason we're doing that is because Kate Riga, my co-host, is going to be you know, covering the release of the actual report tomorrow. And it's going to be a report. And then I guess they're going to have, I'm not sure they're using that word, uh, you know, appendices, you know, su- supplements, basically all the documentation. And at least the last I heard, they were still uh, being a little, giving themselves a little wiggle room about whether every last thing was going to be released, like at exactly one o'clock or 12 o'clock or whenever it is tomorrow. But it seems pretty clear that's when it that's when it is going to be. So that's a big thing uh, coming up. Obviously, uh, they need to do it now because the House is about to come under new management. Um, and uh, I think we still don't know quite what the new management is going to do. Clearly, they are going to shut down the committee as we have understood it to date. But it's 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 still possible they may sort of turn it into an anti-committee, you know, almost do like what Elon Musk is doing now with at Twitter, where he's doing these Twitter files, right? He's going to like the, he's going to the file cabinet and say, ah, what do we got? And it's been pretty, you know, it's been pretty sad what they have since, it, you know, Twitter may have been mismanaged before, but it was pretty straightforward what they were trying to do. And, um, it's a kind of a funny thing because, you know, one of the things that we have seen about the the far right in the U.S. over the last, you know, how far do you want to go back, uh, a good last 10 years or so, is that you can always come up with something because there's no bar. There's no, there's no, there's no standard. You, you just come up with nothing and you jump up and down and a certain amount of the population will, will you know, believe it's, 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 it's the most outrageous thing ever. Um, and with, uh, you know, y- you've got the, um, the Jim Jordans 
who basically, you know, kind of release all the files, all the all the hidden the hidden information that the January 6th committee didn't want to let you know. Now, I think in the real world, the hidden information is probably things like things that even the January 6th committee thought were too, you know, too personal maybe for some of the people in question. You know, just just as an example, I mean, we're not that we're not the January 6th committee, but you know, when we did our series uh, last week um, about the the Mark Meadows texts, if you read through the articles, there were various points at which in which we said, you know, so and so whose name we're not going to reveal did X, Y, and Z, and the reasons in those cases were usually because we made a judgment call. This is just some random non-public person. Right, that that somehow ended up in 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 Mark Meadows, um, you know, text stream. Now, if that person had, uh, you know, implicated themselves in some major illegal act, then it'd be a different story. But if they're just kind of mouthing off, as a news organization, you make a judgment, kind of like, you know what? We it we may be able to sort of light this person up for public ridicule and and whatever, but. Is there really a news value to that? So there's probably some stuff like that in the in the January 6th committee. But like all of this stuff is kind of is the whole idea that you're going to do a counter committee is premised on the idea that it really was Antifa or it really was a false flag organization by, you know, uh, operation by the FBI or all these other kind of insane ideas that still um, animate the right. Um, as you know, they came out with these uh, criminal referrals um, and Donald Trump was the, you know, the top guy, which makes sense. And I think, uh, I believe it was Jamie Raskin who I think made the right point. It's not okay if just the foot soldiers take the hit, because some of those folks are taking a hit. You know, a lot of the people who just like, you know, they went into the Capitol, they walked around for a while. Those people may be getting suspended sentences, maybe, you know, a few months in prison because that's obviously they're they're participating in 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 the whole thing. Um, you're not allowed to go into the you know, restricted areas of Congress, et cetera. But some people are getting serious criminal sentences, you know, five years, 10 years, and, and they deserve it because they committed serious crimes. But it is inequitable that the person who put everything into effect, whose actions were the necessary, uh, if not always sufficient condition for these things happening, to just walk. And one thing I one thing that was very interesting to me in 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 the referral conversations, and I think uh, Kate and I'll probably talk about this in a minute, is that they by design kept saying, you know, and others, but they said Donald Trump and John Eastman and others. So it's very clear. There's like there's Donald Trump. He's the big guy, and then there's John Eastman before before everybody else who's just in the grab bag. Like they made a, a pretty, that was a pretty loud and clear point that he is the first among equals after Trump of the person who they think committed a lot of serious crimes. And I found that kind of striking. I mean, I don't disagree with it at all. Um, 
I could I could sort of imagine a couple other people who might who they might have decided were in kind of the same the same group, you know, the same high level of culpability. But that was that was very interesting and I think pretty unfortunate for John Eastman, you know. A few other points we'll get into. You know, one one uh we're also going to talk about this, you know, this George Santos case in in uh in his his district, his his new district, maybe soon to be former district. I mean, what's going to go? What's going to happen with this guy? He's got a district that's in the eastern Long Island. I'm sorry, western Long Island and uh, part of Queens. So, sort of straddles the border of New York City. Who you know seems to have sort of fabricated his entire life story. And there's a whole uh, question about that. Uh, in any case, we're going to talk about that and a few other issues. But before we do that, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you're Getting back to work, uh, you know everybody. Everybody needs their 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 coffee order. Well, Grady's Cold Brew makes it easy to please everyone at the office. Their bean bag kits are simple to brew. Just add them to a container of cold water and let them steep in the office fridge overnight. Stock your break room with sweeteners, syrups, and alt milks and let everyone be their own barista. Order a beanbag box to get 72 servings of subtly sweet cold brew for $60. Let me see. Wait, hold on. I'm not wearing my glasses. It says 60. I don't want to quote them quote them wrong because everybody will be demanding it to uh, purchase for the wrong price. Yes, it is $60. That's the price that even accounting will love. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Kate Riga, co-host Kate Riga, what is what was your take from from the final committee hearing yesterday? It was interesting because in some ways I think it struck as very anticlimactic because we knew the criminal referrals were coming for quite a while. We even kind of knew what three of the four charges would be. Um, so in some ways it was it felt very crafted, kind of less for reporters whose you know driving interest is always you know what's new here and more for. I think, a more casual watcher because it was really just kind of like, you know, I, I called one of my blog posts on this previously on the January 6th committee because it was just like kind of a super smash cut of all the biggest moments. And, you know, they have shown a penchant for making compelling and emotional TV. So they had a big video montage that was, you know, spliced in with the violence on the steps of the Capitol. And then pieces from the depositions and all just kind of wove together and they went member by member down the line to it was it was basically the closing argument right it's just you you take up all your best arguments you put it together and here's the thesis which is that donald trump is likely uh guilty of of multiple criminal charges which they're passing off to the DOJ. Uh, I agree with you that I think we kind of always knew that John Eastman was probably on the hot seat to some degree, but he was on the hot seat to a degree unlike anybody else in those kind of upper echelons of Trump's orbit. It really was kind of Trump, Eastman, and then, you know, we'll get into this, but the text of the executive summary that dropped right after the hearing gave us some hints as to who those quote unquote others are that Raskin uh, referenced when he was reading out the charges. Um, so we can kind of, maybe we just get into that now. Um, yeah, who are the, who are the, give, give us a few names. Yeah. Who seems high on that list? Okay. So overall we had 
so Trump gets slammed with obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to make a false statement, and inciting an insurrection. Those first two, they also explicitly name Eastman too. Okay, so as you get into the summary, they kind of break down each charge to explain their rationale and and the supporting evidence. So that first one, which is obstruction of an official proceeding, which to me kind of seems like hard to dispute. Yeah, 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 (laughs) right. Like they very actively tried to obstruct the certification of the electoral college votes. So there, it says uh, others working with Eastman likely share in Eastman's culpability. For example, Kenneth Chesbro was a a central player in the scheme to submit fake electors to the Congress and the National Archives. So we got him. And then it also says the committee notes that multiple Republican members of Congress, including Representative Scott Perry, likely have material facts regarding regarding President Trump's plans to overturn the election. So those two named out there. For the next charge, conspiracy to defraud the U.S., uh, they say that Jeffrey Clark, another Trump lawyer, stands out as a participant in the conspiracy. And they say others who appear to have been included are Chesbro again, Mark Meadows, and Rudy Giuliani. And then you have Eastman and Chesbro again coming up as, quote, co-conspirators under the third charge. Um, and then insurrection, they, <laughs> they leave that one to Trump alone. But then they kind of conclude that section by saying, oh, bonus section, we actually actually think that Trump is probably guilty of these two other things too, but we couldn't, you know, make the case because too many people pleaded the fifth or refused to testify. And those are and those are the um seditious conspiracy statute and then the one about you can't stop an official of the from of the US from discharging their duties. Right. Right. And with the uh, discharging their duties one, the committee also kind of helpfully points the DOJ in the direction of Mark Meadows saying he can probably help you make the case, but he refused to testify before the committee. So those are the people that the committee seems most interested on this, you know, tertiary level after Trump and Eastman. Yeah, it's it's funny because when I when I saw Eastman sort of singled out so much, at first I was as I thought about it, it I think it make it does make sense, not surprisingly, there's smart people up there. I had been thinking of Jeff Clark and as you say, he comes up as one of the uh, you know, lesser named people in one of those charges, but I guess the I guess the argument with with uh, Clark would be that you know he was willing, but he didn't quite get his chance at the plate, as it right. were. Um, you know, he just that he didn't really uh, he they didn't get to him, sort of. And and you know, um, the charge of insurrection I think is very legitimate, but it's uh, you know it's open to a lot of interpretation, and and I think that uh, you know as as most, as many lawyers have pointed out, you get down to the obvious Trump defense was, I still have free speech. You know, I have my First Amendment rights, and I have lots of First Amendment rights in a political context. And I was making a political argument. Now, I don't find that very persuasive, but it's a but it's a decent defense. At least it you know it at least gets you um, uh, gets you a hearing. But. I note the the complexities of that because, as you said, the other charges, I'm not even sure what there is to dispute. I mean, they were trying to obstruct this official function of the U.S. government. There's, there's simply no – they don't even deny it. 
you know, it, it's and and that was really my sense. And I and I I I think that it is the the weight of those recommendations are. I think heightened by the fact that I think what we currently know from the uh, from the D, you know what we're hearing from the DOJ is they don't necessarily need those recommendations. Like they're they're underway, they're working on it, and I and I think that you know one thing that will that any observer of these kind of things of the DOJ will tell you that the, the DOJ is not is not really interested in the in the recommendations of Congress for good and bad reasons. First of all, it's not up to them. Congress is a legislative and and um, investigative for the purposes of being a legislature entity. It's not it's not a they're not prosecutors. They're not the Justice Department. So it's not up to them. It's up to the Justice Department. Um and, you know, so good reasons and then bad reasons kind of of don't, you know, you're not the boss of me, you know, kind of professional rivalry and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think the, uh, the significance of this is that, th- is that the Congress is, you know, backstopping as it were. You know, if you were thinking of kind of flaking on this, you know, we're going to, we're going to, kind of make the case publicly and make it uncomfortable for you if you decide, well, we just don't think, you know, we don't think it's there. Um, but I certainly have the sense that, um, I, you know, I don't know. I, I have always been fairly skeptical that there would be charges against Trump himself over this whole debacle. But now I'm not really sure. And I think that one of the, paradoxically, one of the things that um, I think has made him much more likely to be indicted now is the stuff with Mar-a-Lago. Hmm. Because it's sort of like, you know, repeat offender. You know, because I, I, th- there's, you know, we always say president isn't um, above the law, uh, which they're not. They shouldn't be. But indicting a president for things he does as president is still a really big is a big big step and and there are a lot of consequences to it um there's a lot of leeriness for very good reasons about going there what you have with the mar-a-lago stuff is kind of like wow you know maybe the things you're doing as president maybe they're kind of on the you know, the fringe of of your kind of latitude as president or maybe kind of sort of. But then you kind of steal these classified documents when you're not president anymore and then you hide them. And I think that, out, you know, outside of the sort of the hardcore MAGA people, I do think there's been a sense of sort of like, you know, you're just a criminal. You're just breaking the law right and left. And if you're going to get indicted on that, then kind of even even though it's different in a way sort of the uh the the line is crossed and so i do think it makes it more likely that he will be indicted and when i was um when i was watching that stuff uh yesterday i did kind of feel like how how are these um 
other than a generalized argument of we just don't want to have a legal proceeding against a former president, what's the argument? For 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 I'm not even sure what the argument is for for a acquittal, let alone a charge. I'm not even sure what the defense is. It's so it's so on the on the obstructing an official proceeding. You know, sometimes those things get kind of technical of, you know, obstruct, you know, well, okay, how big was it a deal if you kind of wouldn't let a meeting happen? Well, this is a pretty big meeting, a pretty consequential one. Um, and it's funny, our colleague David, well, you know, I had thought that. I think early on, I, and I think a lot of other people, were very sort of mystified at the focus on the fake electors thing, because it was sort of happening in plain sight in real time, A, and it was so kind of ridiculous. Like, they're fake. Like, you know, I, I could... You know, I, I I could come up with a Josh dollar and try to go in and and you know buy something at the store, but would you arrest me? Like, no, because it's a Josh dollar. Like, it's not whatever. Um, and at first, I think a lot of us thought. I thought speak for my speak for my own errors, possible errors. Um, that the key was is that it involved very specific acts, very specific sworn statements that were false. So it's like, you know, right in the bullseye for what you can, you know, what you can uh, bring a charge against. But as I had a conversation with David about this, and he kind of walked me through it and, and helped me understand it in a, in a different way, is, you know, the fake electors thing, it's of a piece with the shutting down what was happening on January 6th. It all fits together. So it all really is a conspiracy. They're, they're, they're not, I mean, I, I knew this, but I didn't quite, um, it wasn't, I, I hadn't fully internalized how central it was to everything else that happened. Um, anyway. Yeah, I think a big point of discussion has been these committee referrals have no legal weight. Like you say, you have to maintain separation of powers here. So the legislation the legislative branch can't just tell, you know, the executive what to do and what to enforce. But the point of it and the value of it is political and public, you know, making this case as airtight as you can. So the DOJ can't just kind of like wiggle out of it without any difficulty. And I think yesterday, as a closing argument, much of it drove right at the obstruction of an official proceeding point. You know, there was the most granular detail we got and that was rehashed was all about the central image, which Cheney brought up first of Trump sitting in the dining room off, you know, in the West Wing, watching the the violence unfold on TV and refusing to call anything off. And then after that, it was all the details of, you know, senior White House staff recounting people getting nervous, people telling him to call it off. And him just kind of rebuffing all of those efforts. Like this was their final public hearing and they spent probably 75% of it on what was happening while the action was unfolding. And that to me seems to drive specifically at that one charge to kind of hand the DOJ this blueprint of here's all the evidence we collected. This, this top charge at least is just rock hard, you know, um, 
so I think that's interesting. And then the kind of parallel to that is we know Jack Smith, the the special counsel who's in charge of both, you know, January 6th and the Mar-a-Lago docs. The first actions that he's taken that we've become aware of are subpoenaing Brad Raffensperger in Georgia and the big election workers in all of the swing states, you know, trying to ascertain Trump and Trump campaign communication with them, which, like you say, that's where you tie in the fake electors thing, which is all of a piece, right? It's all about disrupting the official proceeding of certifying the votes, you know, by both letting violence literally disrupt the process and then also trying to put forth these, you know, false actors. So I think it all it all does kind of tie together. And I totally agree with you that for a long time, I've just been so skeptical of anything happening to Trump, in part because he's been untouchable his whole life for doing, you know, various levels of crimes. But also, you know, you've got you've got Merrick Garland kind of at the helm, who is the embodiment of caution and uh, this kind of uh, nervousness about stepping over lines and breaking norms. Um, but it's just it's hard to see how we're going to get some kind of uh, yeah, there wasn't enough there, there conclusion, because, you know, I think the January 6th committees, maybe their best service has been putting it all together even more than uncovering new stuff, because we we knew most of it already. So it's just really increasing how damning it is to see it all strung together. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the point Trump's best defense has always been on the sort of the insurrection proper, the riot, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, that, you know, he's up there getting them stirred up. You may not believe it, but he can certainly make an argument of like, hey, I was trying to get everybody riled up. I didn't know they're actually going to break into the Capitol. And how are you going to disprove that? Right. He didn't say break into the Capitol. And so they've always been very focused on combining it with this other point. After they broke into the Capitol and all of his people are are there with him saying, Trump, they broke into the Capitol. So if that wasn't his intention, that's when he would say, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. you clearly misunderstood me. Please, everybody stand down. Right. Clearly. He didn't do that. He let it go on for like three hours or something. I mean, I think that's what, 180 Mm -hmm. minutes or something like that. I can do the math sort of in my head. Um, So that kind of locks it from both sides. It's pretty clear that at at a, he made clear, go up there and make them feel the heat. Now, I think that before we without knowing how it all panned out, you could say maybe they just mean have a kind of a riot outside the Capitol or, you know, a loud demonstration where the people inside are hearing them chanting and whatever. Well, maybe, you know, that's 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 not implausible. Um, but we know how it turned out. And and it's funny. I mean, I I um, I don't see myself as someone who needs a great deal of persuading on Trump's guilt about this stuff. But actually, when I was watching that yesterday, I was kind of like, man, it's a little tighter than I thought. Yeah. Not, not, that, not that the guilt is clearer than I thought, but just when you look at the actual laws, like, you know, there's a law obstructing an official government proceeding. I mean, how, how, what is your possible defense? 
What is your possible defense on that? Clearly it happened. Clearly you did it. Um, and there's these other laws. Now on the, on insurrection, I mean, that's the one that kind of like, it it's such an... Um, it, <laughs> It, it's such a general thing. I think if I'm the defense attorney, I would say, okay, look, yeah, ob- ob- obstructing a, 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 an official government proceeding, the Civil War. I mean, it's funny. Um, if you look up the records, the official records of the Civil of the U.S. Civil War, um, wait, did they call it? They actually call it rebellion. In any case, the Civil War was was an insurrection against the United States government. That was the legal theory, the union's legal theory of the Civil War. I think if you're a defense attorney on the charge of insurrection, you say, look, okay, obstructing an official proceeding, um, there's violence, but like, no one was trying to kind of, there was no coup. This was just a a kind of a disorderly uh, ransacking of the Capitol building. It's not an insurrection, you know, kind of, that's just... And and I'm not sure that's I I don't know I'm not even I mean is what case law even is there, you know on on an insurrection I, I don't even I mean to me it is definitely an insurrection because you are trying to overthrow the constitutional system. Donald Trump had no legitimate power after January twentieth, twenty twenty one. Any effort to perpetuate that power is a coup d'état. So, but again. That is me as someone who thinks about politics, as an historian. Legal cases come down to, you know, legal boxes you have to check. And we don't have a lot of precedent for like insurrections, right, in this country. In any case, it seemed like a pretty strong argument um, to me. Not that I'm probably the hardest person to convince. But one other point, though, and I do think this again plays into it. As you see Trump's, he's still the leader of the GOP. But there's clearly, let's put it this way, there are clearly a lot of Republican cowards who, even though they don't want to stand up to Trump, they are passively hoping that Trump falls apart or that someone else stands up to Trump or they're not going to help him. And that is basically political. They want to be done with him. But I do think there's another that political factor mixes with a certain amount of exhaustion of kind of like, man, what you did here was really not okay. <laughs> you know, really not okay. And where, where I think you see those things coming together is like with Bill Barr, basically. Obviously, he's trying to repair his reputation. I'm not, I'm not saying anything positive about him. But on the Mar-a-Lago stuff where he's basically said like, yeah, you don't don't break the law. W- what is the possible rationale here? There's none. And I think he's kind of I don't know where he is on the Jan 6 stuff, but anyway. What do yeah. we what do we what do we see happening tomorrow? What's what do we expect? It's still somewhat up in the air if we're going to get this whole enormous bundle at once or if they're going to release some stuff a bit later like you say they've given themselves a little breathing room there, but You know, one thing I wanted to say before we move on to another topic is I have been a little bit confused about the timing and like the format of the rollout of these final conclusions here, because the through line that we've heard over and over and over is that they don't want this to be like the Mueller report because they think people didn't really read that. They think it wasn't really clear what he was saying ultimately. Um, That being said, 
the rollout here so far looks a lot like the Mueller reports rollout. You know, we get this summary and then it seems like we're going to get a, a big, huge, multi-page, you know, just gigantic document all at once. And then all, you know, our listeners will remember when the Mueller report came out, if you had like cable TV on, people were trying to read it on air to comment on it in real time, you know. And I think the danger with such an approach is that stuff gets lost or if kind of the the big amorphous media doesn't cover it the way the committee wants. It's kind of like you've got this one bite out of the apple, which I think was the point of releasing the summary early. So you at least get, you know, extended coverage a little bit more. Um, people will be looking for a new angle for the big report because the referrals were headlines two days ago. Um, but, you know, it's going to be a similar thing, I think, with all this, you know, having to parse it. And, and in some ways, you know, for TPM, that that kind of thing can be good for us because we often like we're to, parsers. Yeah. And we like to look into like angles and stories that is not, you know, kind of the big headline thing, but then kind of combined with that is I understand the timing from the perspective that Republicans are taking over the house in a few weeks and the January 6th committee will be no more. But also this is like the nadir of news consumption of the whole year. Like this is just the time where anyone who who works at a news outlet and even people who consume news probably kind of know this is when people go away for the holidays and you kind of unplug and you're not as much doing your normal get to work, drink my coffee, read the news, uh, you know, kind of routine. And it, to some degree, that has been disrupted in the in the Trump and post-Trump era. Like, we don't have the same news lulls that we used to. Right, right. But still, if there's a slowest time of the year, this is the time, you know, that the holiday season is the time. And we're kind of getting this big, supposed to be blockbuster report right in this dead time. And, you know, Maybe it, it will have more salience than I think it will. But I do think the concern is real that a, a person who's not a political junkie who would read this no matter what time of the year it came in, you know, might miss it just because of the timing. You know, th this is that rare occasion where I think I see it a little differently from you. Here, here's why. Here's, here's what I think. There were two fundamental things about the Mueller report. One is that it started with Bill Barr's gloss. Hmm. which was nothing here came up, you know, came up empty. And there's all the stuff about how he sort of, you know, he falsified it basically, you know, the report came out, but it came out under the, under, you know, under his gloss of saying nothing, you know, nothing here, nothing happened. But then the second point is, and this is where it is Mueller's fault that it basically, it said, you know, couldn't find evidence of collusion, which, you know, which is a very technical thing, blah, 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 but it kind of pulled its punches there and then really pulled its punches on the, on the second front, which was on the second, you know, the, the two parts of the report, the second part of the report, where it basically said, you know, we're not, we're not in a position to say, to render any judgment about whether you obstructed justice. But here's just a bunch of stuff we found, all of which overwhelmingly supported obstruction of justice. So on both of those counts, it the, the report kind of deflated itself because 
it was introduced by someone. It was introduced to the public by someone who wanted to discredit it. And it was a bit self-discrediting itself. And in this case, it seems to me, the committee left no question. Trump's guilty. He's very guilty. And he's guilty of a lot of things. They pulled no punches there at all. And I assume that the report, I mean, you know, how big is the report possibly going to be? The executive summary is almost 200 pages, right? I mean, this is going to be like volumes and volumes or something. Um, it's not going to pull punches. So, in you know, in some ways, it's uh, the, you know, how much do we have to worry about the general public digging into the details when the headline is so clear? Trump did it. He's guilty. He should be punished. Now, having said that, yes, it is kind of a dead news period. And, um, you know, I, I uh, you know, I guess one other way to look at it, though, I mean, and, you know, they have no choice. They're shutting down. But the other thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, a lot of this as as the the great series that you and your colleagues, Kate, uh, put together showed a lot of this isn't about Trump. A lot of it is about people who are in positions of leadership in the next Congress. True, though, that I'll be really interested to see in the final uh, report, because we did have kind of a flurry of palace intrigue people at the committee being pissed at Liz Cheney stories in this last run. And the central driving force there was people being annoyed that she was insisting on the singular Trump focus to the omission of kind of other points that the committee brought up. And it's not entirely clear to me if that's because people are, you know, people who work on the committee are genuinely concerned that, you know, someone like a, a Scott Perry or a Mark Meadows or whatever is going to get off scot-free. Or if this is more from a, you know, an understandable but personal peak that the work that you did is kind of getting sliced out of the final product. And yeah, we do know... I was just gonna say, we do know that the committee had like di disparate teams working on stuff. They have like the Trump team, they have the the follow the money team, you know, just like coming at it from different angles. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll see with the final product. And maybe the thing is that she just felt and other people on her side felt like the biggest impact we can have here is to be like you say, counter the Mueller report, to be unambiguous and clear and have an easily summarized thesis, that would make a lot of sense to me. But it is going to be interesting, I think, to see how often, particularly those who are still in Congress, who played leading roles in this, crop up throughout the report. Yeah, one thing, I mean, there's, there's, I guess, understandably, there's still a lot of, are there's still some level of suspicion about Liz Cheney among Democratic partisans. And when I say Democratic partisans, I don't mean in the sense that they're not, you know, that that isn't meant to discredit them. Um, but it is it, it it's it's just hard for me to believe that at this point in the game, Liz Cheney's got much invested in Scott Perry. I just don't buy that. That doesn't make any <laughs> sense to me, frankly. And and I don't know who who the four is. It Jim Jordan or uh, Andy Biggs. I mean, these people ended her political career. Um, I I think. I mean, look, she gave up her political career for this. She's she's she is has no future in the Republican Party. Um, she's not plausible in the Democratic Party. She gave up a lot for this. So I think we got to kind of, you know, give her her due. I, I just, I, 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 um, it doesn't, it, it just doesn't add up to me 
that she would be concerned about covering for the leaders of the Freedom Caucus. I can sort of see like, you know, she's still a conservative. I, I'm, I'm, I assume she's still very happy about the composition of the Supreme Court, you know? I mean, whatever. That, that's, that's who she is. I don't, I don't take that away from her. Um, but yeah, I just, I, 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 it, that just doesn't add up that she's saying kind of like, okay, I hate Trump, but I'm still a Republican. So, so, you know, don't, 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 don't be mean to Scott Perry. That's, that doesn't, that doesn't add up to me. Yeah. So let's move on to a couple other things before we run out of time. Um, the one that I think segues the neatest is kind of while we have this budding situation for Trump. I mean, he's got multiple situations. He's always being investigated by like 10,000 different people, it feels like. But while, while this track at least is, you know, gaining speed, gaining momentum, and you got Jack Smith kind of working his grand jury in the background, Trump unveiled last week this all caps major announcement that he had teased the day before, which obviously kind of got political observers on the buzz about, you know, this is going to be his running mate, right? Or some other significant announcement related to his 2024 bid. I even heard some people saying like he's going to he's going to say he should be speaker. Oh my I mean, God. that was that was kind of crazy, but it did sound like something of that momentousness. Exactly. And then we get the grand reveal, and it is NFTs, you know, non-fungible tokens, basically just so you can own digital artwork if you pay for it with cryptocurrency. And it's like a set of <laughs> what he described as like baseball cards, but quote, hopefully much more exciting of Trump, like Barbie Trump, you know, in, in all different outfits, like in one, he's a fancy media mogul man in front of the Hollywood sign. And then another, he's a football player. And in another, he's a cowboy. And the art is so, so bad that if you didn't know better, you would think it was a joke. Like photoshops where like his a tiny head is like perched on a big body with a tuxedo and, you know, he's a boxer and he's really ripped and has like a 45 on his hands and each one costs $99. And even in the video that is released where he's promoting it, where he says, you know, he's a better president than Lincoln, better president than Washington. I was laughing until tears are running down my face at this part where he was talking about how you know, each NFT, I guess, comes with like a Willy Wonka golden ticket chance to get a meeting with him. And so he was introducing the series and he says, and we have, you know, amazing prizes. You'll get a chance to have a one-on-one -on -one dinner with me. And then in classic Trump style, he like interrupts him, you know, his own, what he's clearly reading the prepared words to say, no, I don't know if that's an amazing prize, but it's what we have. And then like moved you on. You know, there, there's, there's, it's funny. Trump has always had moments like that these kind of these kind of uncanny moments of self-awareness yes yes right that, that that sort of that belie the um you know the showman stuff mm -hmm. right as almost like he's sort of like stepping back from trump to just be because you know kind of like i don't know it sounds like something i might say you know i don't know is that is that fun to have dinner with josh you know kind of <laughs> it, it it but he's it's not the first time he's done stuff you know yeah. he's done he's done stuff like that totally i mean the classic in the genre is when 
years ago, he put in that aside where he was like, can you imagine what I'd be like if I drank? It was like, they've been scattered throughout. It's exactly what you say. It's self-awareness where he almost like steps back from character Trump to like comment on character Trump as a third person, a third party observer before jumping back in. And, but, and not and not a not a totally positive third party. Totally, yeah. <laughs> but um, it was so just grifty that even MAGA world was kind of like, "What the fuck is this?" You know, you're expecting him to be like, "And Carrie Lake will be on the ticket with me in 2024," and instead he introduces this like grifty kind of shambolic fundraising thing, which. I mean, putting aside the fact that Melania tried to do this about a year ago and it exploded so spectacularly that it seems that she had to like rebuy her own NFTs because people didn't bid high enough on it. And putting aside the fact that much of Trump's base probably don't know what cryptocurrency is, much less have a crypto wallet at their, you know, at their side. And I've heard some kind of like big theories, like maybe this is just a money laundering thing, like letting people send him crypto, which is notoriously, you know, hard to track and blah, blah, blah. But the grand conclusion is that even kind of ardent fans were like, this is pathetic because that's what it is. I mean, it felt it had the feel of like, I don't know, late night QVC or something. It was just so low energy and he seemed so half-hearted about it you know that it just really I think a lot of people responded for the first time being like uh is he gonna be able to run in 2024 like this is some low energy Jeb stuff right now totally totally and also you know it's it when you talk about the artwork the artwork is very much you know there there's a whole genre largely on social media of you know Trump Trump face photoshopped on ripped body kind of, (laughs) I mean, it's a, it's a whole genre and it was exactly like that, you know, kind of Trump as he man, Trump as strongest man in the world, which is, you know, kind of like, yeah, jokey. It's a little, it's a little funny if you're like an obese man who's almost 80. I mean, like kind of like, okay. I mean, whatever. Uh, But, and the other, you know, an additional thing is, is that NFTs are kind of downstream of of the cryptocurrency mm-hmm. world and these are not great times for crypto you know <laughs> right. crypto is kind of on its heels at the moment um uh, people may you know agree or disagree over whether that's permanent or not but it's sort of funny timing and um it it does i think he is some of his people have tried to portray it as ah you fell for it you know he punked everybody you got all you got all everybody got all worked up and it's the nfts like well you know maybe you punked yourself kind of like you're not it's another thing that kind of um it's another thing that goes to the general perception of he's just doesn't have it anymore mm just doesn't have the juice to get this done. And, um, you know, that's one of the many ways I think the January 6th committee has actually accomplished a lot, that it 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 has made him seem not only, da- not only guilty, but kind of just damaged goods. Right. Like, I think a lot of Republicans are kind of like, yeah, I like the, like the poly, you know, kind of like, yeah, still, still be authoritarian and still hurt people, but maybe we need someone new to do that. Maybe we mm-hmm. need Rick DeSantis to do it. Maybe it's a little a little done with um with Trump. But on all of those things, I 
there were a number of things that happened over the last week that got me a little further to thinking, this guy's never going to be president again. I don't know if that means he's he's not going to win the nomination, although I'm I keep getting more skeptical about that. Uh, although I you know I don't even know what I think, but I don't think this guy's going to be ever be president again. And thank God if that's true. And and I'm not saying I'm 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 you know counting on that, but that's just my read. He's just taken on too much water basically. I don't think um anyway, that that's my Yeah. That's my I mean, read. I think at this moment in particular, it really is just a nadir for Trump because it's he's coming off the midterms where he was kind of directly responsible for some very high profile losses. And it was the third consecutive cycle where he'd been responsible for high profile losses, um, especially in a cycle where Republicans were expected to do quite well. And then on top of that, you've you've just got this idea of, you know, he's always in Mar-a-Lago, he will only do like uber-friendly TV, and we've kind of like, seen that. That I, I, path- I was gonna let me ask you something because mm-hmm. I was wondering about this myself. Does he even go on Fox anymore? I feel like he doesn't even really go on Fox anymore. All the recent ones I've seen are like Breitbart and, and Newsmax and stuff right. like that, or like conservative uh, talk show radio like stuff. Mike Lindell kind of TV, exactly. kind of these like Newsmax and those kind of. Yeah, I mean, he weighed in on the uh, on the McCarthy speakership thing uh, a day or two ago, uh, saying that people should support McCarthy. Um, And he did that, you know, via a Breitbart interview. So so those are the kind of pastures he's seeking out. And it is funny because we've now seen kind of a, a tranche of MAGA characters try to do that, try to take the whole like, we hate the press thing and translate it into we are never taking an unfriendly question. And honestly, it just hasn't seemed to work out that much of the time, right? Like that was Herschel Walker's whole campaign was refusing to talk to any normal reporters like Carrie Lake did the same thing. And it's like they do this thing where they try to get mileage out of you know, making fun of the reporters who come and cover their their big events and then only sit down for interviews with these like not so right wing things, which I think has the dual effect of a making more people believe that they're kind of right wing not so and b those places, while their audience is going to be very friendly for, to you, that's not a very big audience. And obviously, we are going through a huge transition in kind of the media political landscape and how to reach people and people are not being reached the same way as they used to. But we are starting to build up a bit of a database that if you are only going to go to places that reach a very limited audience that is totally on your side, that's having some like real downstream effects for these politicians. I would say too, as in so as in, as is so often the case, it looks smart when you're winning. Right. It looks really smart. It looks really tough when you're winning. When you're winning and you're like, nah, nah, New York Times, nah, 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 CNN. When you're losing, it looks pathetic. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what, it, it, and I, I'm not even sure, like, when was the last time? I guess he hasn't been on the road since uh, since the election. Yeah. But it does, it, it, there's kind of like a Howard Hughes vibe now. Him down in Mar-a-Lago. Um, you know, ranting on Truth Social and stuff like that. And just the reality of the legal situation makes him makes him seem on the defensive because he is on the defensive. And, you know, it's funny you said about, you know, his role, his apparent role, which I think is clear in in a disappointing midterm for the for the for Republicans. One of the weird things about that is that 
it only seemed to kind of Republicans only really had an epiphany that they've had three bad elections. You know, they held they they um, they held the Senate in 2018. They did better than it. They they did better than they thought they would do in the House um, in in 2020. Arguably, maybe the Senate, but at big picture, they, they were they were three consecutive bad cycles. Um, but they had kind of convinced themselves and convinced a lot of the the political world that that wasn't true. That that kind of like that Trump pulled it off. You know, yeah, he's crazy, but he but he but he wins. But not really. You know, they, they they've actually had some you know th- three consecutive elections where they did you know at best so so, and by most, I mean, look, he was not reelected. American presidents get reelected. There's only a handful in the entire history of the country who haven't been reelected when they've when they've tried uh, to run again. So you know, all kind of uh, a lot of a lot of things about Trump's time in public life, which again, well, you know, political public life, which only goes back seven or eight years, um, that he was able to, he and his supporters were able to sort of deny through a lot of taunting and razzmatazz have all kind of come undone all at once. And, you know, they've all kind of synergized each other as it were. I mean, and I would add as a caveat, and I I think you agree with this, that it is also very possible that Trump is kind of at a nadir right now. And that when we get closer to the action of 2024, there'll be the same rallying around the flag we saw in 2016, you know, when at the beginning of the Republican primaries, there was a very large vocal never Trump contingent. And then as soon as he wrapped things up, most of those qualms were immediately dropped. So I don't think either of us is saying like, you know, Trump is kind of dead in the water, but it does look like we're heading for a a very messy Republican primary situation, whichever way you slice it, because Trump is not going to go quietly into that good night. Trump has got a percentage of the base that would literally die for him. And I know kind of like the sexy thing to say of late has been like, oh, well, Ron DeSantis is Trump in a more disciplined package. But like, this is a man who has not really been tested on a national stage. And we're still far enough from the election that this is the point where like all kinds of weird people are the buzzy, this is going to be the guy. And then you like put him on a stage and he'd chokes or whatever and you you kind of realize maybe while he hasn't broken into national salience before this point so i think there's still a lot of stuff up in the air but it's hard to see the republicans having a a very strong position going into 24 at this point anyway i definitely agree i mean i would say that he's still the odds on favorite right trump agreed yeah to 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 be the nominee i'm certainly not saying he's done i i guess what i am saying is that i i think he is I think he's damaged enough that he would have to really slog through to get the nomination. But most people have to slog through to get a nomination. And then he'll be pretty damaged uh, after that. Um, you know, so who knows? I mean, the future's a long way away. I mean, I think that one of the things about Ron DeSantis is that if you're Ron DeSantis, you want right now to be December 2023, not December mm-hmm. 2022. Totally. Um, because a lot can happen over a year. and. Um, once it's not necessarily going to be Trump, there's a lot of other Republicans who want it to be them, not just, you know, 
not, not just a palace coup by by Ron DeSantis. Uh, oh, so we got to talk about this. George, speaking about DeSantis, how about nice. Santos? Yes, Good a little transition. segue there. So this George Santos guy in, uh, well, our former neck of the woods, now my neck of the woods, uh, he, he just got elected to this district, which has a bit of Queens, which is part of New York City, and is mostly in Western uh, Long Island. Um, uh, won what was an open seat because the, the, the representative uh, tried to run for governor, didn't get the nomination. Um, so he won and, you know, kind of part of that uh, New York State uh, red tide, um, a red wave or whatever. Uh, red tide's a little weird. Um, uh, red wave. And so that now the, the New York Times comes out with this article that basically his entire resume is fraudulent. And and on the one hand, it's sort of made everyone wonder kind of like who, who dropped the ball here? Mm-hmm. You know, there's such a thing as as opposition research. Right. And first off, there's the candidate who's supposed to do it. The Democratic Party committees are supposed to do it. And, you know, he didn't go to either of the colleges he said he went to. He didn't work at either of the banks he said he worked at. And that's just the beginning of the things. Um, he's got an open fraud charge against him in Brazil. I don't know if he, you know, if he's a member of Congress and he goes to Brazil, is he going to be arrested when he goes there because of the check, you know, the check chart, you know, uh, check fraud thing. But the weird thing is people have also said, well, this is, you know, local news, death of local news. That's a little hard to, you know, yes, that is the big story in the US, but New York City has three newspapers. Three newspapers. You can sort of say, although the Times won't kind of cop to it, Times basically a national paper. Maybe they're not doing enough local news. But you've also got the Post. You've also got the Daily News. You've got a paper on Long Island. You've got a number of the outer boroughs each have one or two kind of niche you know, papers. I don't know if they're only digital now or whatever. Uh, I believe there's a Politico has Politico New York. I mean, there's a lot of media in New York City. And part of this district is in New York City. So like, I, I, you know, in lots of parts of the country, you can say that, but kind of like, I'm not sure you can say there's not enough media in New York City. Um, And as I've tried to explain in a couple posts, having a fake resume is not against the law. Okay, Uh, but there's stuff about the finances. He loaned his campaign seven hundred thousand dollars. If you look at his resume, there's really not much there that shows him until the last year. A company he set up in Florida in in 2021. He said he got an income of seven hundred fifty thousand dollars from plus between $1 million and $5 million of dividends. That company was founded in May 2021 and dissolved in September 2022 because it never filed an annual report. You know, sort of like a technical violation, not technical, but, you know, an administrative violation that it just ceased to exist. So, and before that, he like got taken to court because he owed two months or two grand of rent. And another another case and another eviction case where you owe ten thousand dollars of rent. I mean, this does not speak to a person who's like rolling in money, right? So all of this maybe maybe 
the income is made up since everything else is made up. But the money he loaned to his campaign can't be made up. The campaign either has the money or it doesn't. $700,000 is a lot of money. Now, I know I don't, you know, gentle listeners, I, I know you don't need me to tell you that. But let's think about this. There are a number of affluent people who have assets. You know, some people own their home outright. Maybe that's $700,000. People have a lot of assets. Pretty few people have $700,000 in cash available. Okay. Many, many, few, far fewer have $700,000 in cash that they're willing to loan with little prospect of ever getting it back. So, where's the money from? Like, what is this guy's story? And um, you have the added mix to this that Republicans don't have a lot of representatives they can afford to lose. It's pretty narrow as it is. And this isn't like having someone resign in Texas. There's a pretty good chance Democrats get that seat back. So I, you know, what's you, what's your impression of this whole thing? It's such a bizarre story. Reading the Times report, it almost like gave you just compulsive liar vibes because there are some details in there that go beyond the self-aggrandizing thing, which maybe you can understand. Like it's still, I mean, it's weird to fabricate your whole life story. I'm not saying it's not, but like he's not going to be the first one to try to inflate his resume by being like, I went to these schools and I worked at these prestigious banks. Okay, whatever. You can maybe understand that on some level, but you know, he he apparently seems to have lied about employees of his dying at the Pulse shooting, nightclub. the nightclub yep. shooting, which is like, what? I mean, yeah, that's why? bizarre. Yeah, where, where, would you, where would you come up with that? Right. I mean, and little stuff like that, that is just very, very odd. Um, but yeah, I mean, the political realities now, Republicans can't lose a seat. They can't have a special election for his seat because they'll probably lose it. So this, they can't let this guy go anywhere, even if he's going to be this big story right off the gate of, you know, they just got the talented Mr. Ripley elected. Yep. And so, you know, we now have Democrats are in an interesting position as well, because I think to some degree, you don't want to give Republicans something to unite them at this moment when House Republicans are in an absolute shambles. And we're right. like careening towards January 3rd, which I'm sure no Democrat at all wants any news at all to take any space away from Kevin McCarthy's, you know, flagellation on the House floor. So, you know, I think that is why we're seeing some amount of restraint from Democrats so far. Like you've got, uh, you know, Jeffries put something out. You had uh, Mondale Jones put something out. Like some people are kind of saying this is nuts, you know, but in terms of kind of proceeding further, we know Republicans are not going to do any repercussions that would risk losing his seat, right? They'd rather have someone who just like made up his whole life than have a Democrat in that seat. So I think for Democrats, it's going to be this, interesting balance of, you know, let's like Mike Kevin get his humiliation and all the front pages, right? And then maybe like, go, you know, refer him to the House Ethics Committee, kind of try to like, ride this train further and further. And also, you know, for New York Democrats, <laughs> there's a who are already facing this huge reckoning, there's gonna be a lot of like, what the hell, guys? Like, how is it possible that none of this came up? And I, I get that he was not expected to win the seat. 
you know, that, that was a democratic leaning seat, but he ended up winning it by eight points. So there had to be some indications. Yeah. And it also wasn't, it's, it's, as I think I tried to explain this in one of the posts I did on it, that that is, I mean, in most of New York City, outside of Staten Island, the Republican candidate is never going to win. They're all Democratic seats. So the action is all in the Democratic primary to the extent there's any action mm-hmm. at all. Um, th- there's there's usually one seat that is somehow or another part of, you know, kind of overlapping with Staten Island that is a, a kind of a swing seat, swing seat, Republican, sometimes Republican seat. But in uh, Western Long Island and Eastern Long Island, for that, that's swing territory. So it wasn't like this was like a safe seat. I wonder if to some extent, um, since part of it was in New York City, people kind of assumed that it was one of those seats. I mean, I kind of did because a year ago, I did a post about this guy, um, this ridiculous thing. He did this He did this social media post, I think it was a Twitter post, where he basically said, because of, my, uh, because of Biden's inflation, I'm spending X dollars on gas a week, and it's unacceptable, and blah, 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 blah. So I ran the numbers, and basically, even by my most conservative calculations, he would have to be driving like 1,000 miles a week, Right. To, to be spending what he was spending. But I looked at where he lived, where he claimed to live, and where his office was, and it's a 14-mile commute, all right? So in the process of doing this, I looked up where he lived, where his, where his, um, where his work was, and he was clearly just like a ridiculous person, um, and, and like some of the addresses didn't make sense or something like that. But I think I didn't pursue it further because New York is, f- is full of ridiculous Republican House candidates who are never going to get elected to anything, right? There's the woman who's been running against AOC, mm. who's this like QAnon person. Are you going to like, you know, do due diligence about where she went to college? No, because she's never going to get elected to anything. So possibly people kind of that, that I mean, I'm not justifying this. I'm just trying to explain how the miss that maybe people kind of, you know, reporters kind of dismissed him in that way. Mm-hmm. But again, it was expected to be a Democratic win, but it was not. It wasn't like it was like a shoe in. It was right. considered a competitive race. So you know, and also, you know, this knows? guy had run in 2020 and yeah. he he lost handily, which kind of, I think, is perhaps a data point to your theory that, you know, maybe people just wrongly assumed that this seat was kind of out of hand for Republicans. So it, it doesn't matter how crazy the candidate is. But, you know, either way, we just now have this incoming freshman, <laughs> like nothing about his life seems to be what he said it was. So, I mean, we've, we have the gamut from like the just kind of comical uh, matter here to, as you say, the potential, which is now where, you know, all the energy is focused on the democratic side of seeing, did this kind of compulsive lying make its way onto financial disclosures and other parts that have serious legal ramifications if you lie about them. I think, I think that's really the key and, and that, that's a lot of money to loan to your campaign. And it's not clear from it's not clear from his resume where that money would have come from. And so that leaves a lot of possibilities. Either that he's in some minor trouble on disclosure fronts, 
or he's in major trouble because maybe the money isn't legit. Who knows? Who knows? Plenty, <laughs> don't plenty. think this is the last we're going to hear no, about I, George I, Santos, though. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it is either. Um, so uh, let me remind you the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's cold brew iced coffee you can get 25% off your order uh, any order your first your hundredth your thousandth order uh, by using the promo code TPM and that's at Grady's cold brew.com right, that's, we'll that's it for this week we'll see you next week later the Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me TPM reporter Kate Riga and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.